words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon, morning, good night, that's from the past, um, all right, Luke 1, verses 26 to 38, it is morning, so a few more hours, Luke 1, 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bond save of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Please pray for me. Lord, we do ask for grace, for we need it. Lord, you know how much we need it. And I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters, strengthen their faith and their confidence in your word, their confidence in you. And I pray that through that too, through your word, you would continue to conform us into Christ's likeness and his courage and his love and his mercy and kindness and his confidence and boldness. Lord, we want to be like you. We're not content to just continuing in the the same patterns of life as we once lived in our degradation and shame. We want to live lives of holiness. People who are set apart for you, for your service, for your glory. We pray that you would accomplish that even through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now, if you grew up Roman Catholic, you were, you were very familiar with that prayer. Um, I myself did, and I, I would pray that prayer over a hundred times a week, probably, when I was my, my children's age. Um, and you may or may not know this, but that prayer really comes from this passage that we're looking at, uh, where, where the angel declares, Hail Mary, full of grace. Just another translation of favored one. 
But the point of this text is not that we should pray to Mary. Um, in fact, if, if anything, it is, it is directing us to recognize the greatness and the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God. And Mary is just presented as exemplary in this regard. And what I want to point out in this text really are just uh, three emphases that the, that the text draws out. Um, instead of actually going verse by verse within this passage, I just want to throw out, draw out three themes that are emphasized. And, and this is the themes. I should say these are the themes. I want to have good grammar. And all of them tie into the trustworthiness of God. That God is faithful to His promises. And, secondly, that God can do all things. And in light of the previous two, we should trust Him and submit ourselves to Him, even as Mary does. And these themes actually carry over from the previous passage about Gabriel's annunciation to Zacharias when he told Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son as well. And you'll note a number of the similarities. First of all, the presence of Gabriel. The initial response of fear, to which Gabriel then provides assurance. And then a birth is promised, and the child is given a name. And the significance of this child is then described. One remarkable difference being, uh, Gabriel told Zechariah that um, John would be great in the eyes of the Lord. But in this passage, it actually says, uh, even more emphatically, he will be great. Not just great in the eyes of the Lord, but he will be great. The essence of greatness, as our Christ is. And then there's a question posed. And then the Spirit's role is noted. And then finally, a sign is given to confirm. The sign for Zechariah was the loss of voice. And the sign for Mary is your relative Elizabeth is already um, six months pregnant. And the emphasis in both these passages, really what I want to draw out is, and show is, it's on the faithfulness of God. That God has been faithful to His promises. He's trustworthy. And I think the biggest difference that we see is in the the response of Zacharias and Mary. Zacharias, in his question, um, asks for a sign to confirm that what the angel is saying is true. But whereas Mary, she doesn't ask for a sign. She asks, well, how can this be? It's not so much a challenge, but really readily embracing what she's told with submission, despite the challenge it is to comprehend what she's being told. And so she's presented as really an example to us in contrast with Zacharias. So let's look first at that first theme. God is faithful to His promises. God's faithfulness is emphasized in the fulfillment of all the Messianic promises that are given in Scripture. Um, This is seen in the description of Jesus in both 35 and 38. The fact that He would be born uh, uh, as to the woman, as the seed of the woman. You remember in Genesis 3, the, the first proclamation of the gospel, the proto-euangelion. Uh, we were told that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Also that he, uh, the Messiah here is going to be born of a virgin, a fulfillment of the prophecy in, a, in Isaiah 7.14. He would be a descendant of David, another uh, repeated promise in the Old Testament. We're told His kingdom will be eternal. It'll be an everlasting kingdom. Another messianic promise. And then also He'll be the Son of God. Fulfilling the description of the Messiah in Psalm 2. 
So the point of these, all these verses, these descriptions of the Messiah, and really all of the first few chapters of Luke is that God is fulfilling his promise of giving a Messiah, a Savior to Israel, really a Savior from sin. He's fulfilling his word. He's doing what he promised because he always keeps his word. In fact, this is what Joshua reminded the Israelites of when he was about to pass away. He said, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord God promised concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. Solomon repeated this in his benediction after the completion of the building of the temple. He said, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke to Moses, his servant. It reaffirms what Proverbs 19.21 declares, that many are the plans of in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Again, God always keeps his promises. Now, he doesn't always keep them in a way that we would expect, because he is not like us. As we read in Isaiah 55, um, God's ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts. Nobody expected that the Messiah would be born to some unknown girl in some podunk town in Israel. Nevertheless, he kept his word. It's something which nobody else can say of themselves, that they are always trustworthy. God is always trustworthy. He alone has never failed. He alone is perfectly good, perfectly faithful, perfectly just and kind. And yet it's remarkable how few people trust him in contrast to who they do trust. I mean, God has even given to us plain and clear for every eye to see. He has revealed his will to us to read and understand, and yet how many reject it or just simply ignore what it says? And again, in contrast, think about how many people are, will readily embrace the outlandish promises of some politician. People they don't know are so-called experts, even those who are unabashedly arrogant and self-interested. People will trust Actors in lab coats on a television commercial and buy the drug that's promoted. They trust conspiracy theorists and false prophets who were the last who were wrong the last time they they predicted the, the end of the world. It's remarkable how many people would rather trust the vague promises of a politician or the uh, licentious lyrics of some rap star, the vague claims of a celebrity or even the wooing seductress words of an adulterer. I mean, it, honestly, it's, it's mind-boggling how sheep will readily trust a wolf rather than the shepherd who has constantly only cared for them and provided for them and protected them. Think about it. How readily people will embrace a lie. 
and yet totally ignore the one person who has never lied, who has always been faithful, and whose character is is holy. Remember when Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was captured and the, the Roman governor demanded that he renounce Christ. The faithful bishop answered, Four score and six years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp's bold confidence came from experiencing a lifetime of faithfulness from God. And we've all experienced it. In fact, even when we were unbelievers, we saw the faithfulness of God. And maybe that's even what brought you to Christ, is seeing the faithfulness of God in in another person's life. Or just, you saw the consistency of God's Word. We can trust God because He's faithful, and we should trust Him also because He can do all things. No purpose of His can be thwarted. This is made abundantly clear in the 37th verse when Mary, uh, sorry, Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. In, in the Greek, uh, it actually says not one word will fail. Not a word of God will be impossible. The point being that He can do anything. And therefore, nothing is going to prevent Him from fulfilling what He's already promised. So it's His will to do what He's promised and nothing can thwart what He's promised. Because nothing can heed His or can, can prevent His power from uh, breaking forth. Even a virgin giving birth to the Son of God. And this is reminiscent of uh, what the angel of the Lord declared to Abraham when he was given an announcement of a miraculous birth. The angel of the Lord said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? For Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? Job realized the same thing after this one-sided conversation that he had with God. When God said, Job, where were you at the beginning of the world? Can you... Can you catch the mountain goat? Can you tame Leviathan? And again and again and again, Job just has to stand there with his mouth shut because it's obvious he cannot give an answer. And this is what Job finally responds to God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You could say that's, that's the, the sum of the Bible. God will fulfill all of His promises because He's faithful and He can do all things. Nothing can hinder His plan. Jesus Himself likewise declared in Mark 10, 27, all things are possible with God. Now I know, especially for Christians, hearing that God can do all that He pleases might seem just axiomatic, right? I mean, after all, He's God. Of course God can do everything. But what we need to to recognize is that this is what underlines why he's so trustworthy. Not just because of his character, but because nothing's going to prevent his word from coming to pass. If God declares to a virgin that she's going to give birth to a son, she will. If God declares to his people 
that you're going to be set free from the Egyptians and I'm going to split the Red Sea and you're going to walk through it on dry land. That's what's going to happen. If God says you will not, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. It's true. And if he says when you are weak, then you are strong. Believe him. And this is the point. If God is trustworthy and he can do all things. Then trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways. Acknowledge him that is know him, know that he's good, know that he's faithful, know that he's all powerful, know that he's just in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Christian, that's what God wants you to learn from this passage. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust Him. Remember what happened to Daniel's three friends after they were threatened for not obeying the king's decree? They responded, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king and what happened he did remember also when Saul King Saul cowered before Goliath and all of his blasphemous boasts and David approached him and said I'll fight this Philistine Saul said you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him but For you are but a youth, your child. And then David declared, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And what happened? He did. God said, march around Jericho. And it collapsed. When God says something, believe him. Because he can do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. We should also ask, well, why does God emphasize this? Why, again, throughout Scripture, that He can do all things? Is it because He just wants to boast? That He just wants to put us in our place? To make Him feel better about Himself? No, He, he emphasizes His power and His trustworthiness because He knows how prone we are to not believe Him. He knows how prone we are to doubt. And how prone we are to follow after wolves. Moreover, he also knows that this is Satan's primary strategy to destroy his people. Satan knows that if he can just get us to trust ourselves, to lean on our own understanding, or to trust in some other being, he knows if he can just do that, then he's got us. We are in the trap. If he can just get us to doubt what God's word said. And we know this for because of the pattern of history and the pattern we see throughout scripture. But even going back to the very beginning, remember what he said. Did God really say? That's Satan's primary attack. And, we need, and, and how often we forget this. If Satan can just get our eyes off of God's word and to trust something else, whether it's ourselves, our emotions, our neighbors, He will have us. 
and he will play with us like a kitten with a mouse. And this is why the whole armor of God is tied to the Bible. Right? Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see how all these pieces of armor flow back into the Word of God. Paul's just really delineating how the way we're going to defend ourselves against spiritual attack, every spiritual attack, is to cling to the Word of God. That is our greatest weapon. And it is the weapon that Satan fears above all other weapons. And so in order for us to spiritually survive, we need to be a people who cling to the promises of God. And not just to survive, right? We don't want to just survive. We want to thrive and fight and make a difference in this adulterous generation. If we're going to be such a people, we have to be mighty in the Scriptures. And not mighty in our imaginations. Not mighty in the world's esteem, but mighty in the Scriptures. With His Word sealed upon our hearts. And so when we face every temptation of doubt, we see it for what it is. We recognize what's going on. And we take up our sword. And instead of fleeing or cowering, we fight. Brothers and sisters, we fight by clinging to the Word of God. Just as doubt is Satan's greatest weapon, faith in God's Word is our greatest weapon. And John Bunyan illustrated this in, the, in his famous work, Pilgrim's Progress. You guys remember when Pilgrim and his friend Hopeful, Christian and his friend Hopeful, were thrown in, into Doubting Castle by giant despair? How do, you, how do you set yourself free from giant despair? How do you get out of Doubting Castle? Christian recognizes, what a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease. So that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. Now those were, that was not just some fanciful story. John Bunyan, as you know, wrote that work while he was in prison for 12 years. While his family languished. And he could, have been, he could have left at any time if he just would have agreed not to stop preaching. Just submit to the governing authorities. And he wouldn't do it. Despite a poor family with numerous children and a blind daughter. And when John Bunyan was released from the 12 years of imprisonment, he looked back over all the hardships that he and his family had to endure over the last 12 years. And he wrote about what it was that enabled him not only to survive, but to thrive. And this is what he said. He quoted 2 Corinthians 1.9, where Paul says, 
We had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. Then he says, by the scripture, I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life. Even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon a God that is invisible. As Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What Bunyan is saying is that what enabled him not only to survive spiritually during that 12-year imprisonment, but to flourish, was clinging to the faithfulness of God in His promises. It was, I mean, that's what made John Bunyan strong and mighty. It was just believing God's Word. Faith in God's Word is our greatest weapon. The missionary John Payton also experienced the precious power of God's promises again and again as he served amongst the cannibals of the South Seas. After one perilous journey, he wrote this, Had it not been for the assurance that in every path of duty God would carry me through or dispose of me therein for His glory, I could never have undertaken the journey. Also, after an measles epidemic that killed thousands on the island, which the missionaries were blamed for bringing, he wrote, During the crisis, I felt generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect and with my whole weight on the promise. Lo, I am with you always. Precious promise. How often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. Blessed be his name. I mean, is that what you want to be? I mean, can you say, too, that you are generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect with your whole weight on the promises of God? You can be. That's, that's what these uh, Christians are encouraging us towards. Because that was their experience. And it was the experience of so many people we see in the Bible. Because God is faithful to His promises and because He can do all things, the proper response from us, therefore, is to entrust ourselves wholly to His care. The third point. Mary says in verse 38, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's response of humility and submission shows why she was so favored of the Lord. Remember, this is how God, uh, uh, sorry, Gabriel addressed her and it would initially perplexed her. And she wondered, what kind of greeting is this? The word favored, we came across a few weeks ago in our exposition of 1 Peter 2, you might remember. When Peter said, servants, that is slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So that word favor, really, it, it, it connotes joy and blessedness of God. 
is what brings him to life. Those who have God's favor are his favorites because, because they trust him. They believe him. They cling to him. They want to follow him. And this is the principle that is conveyed in Isaiah 62. When he says, but to this one will I look. To him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. In fact, I think you could, you could see this whole account of Mary as a living illustration of what that verse is saying. Because she is both humble and contrite of heart and trembles at God's word. And so this look is the look of, of favor, of, his, of God's countenance shining with joy upon a person. And again, his favor is tied into humility, contrition, and a clinging to his word. Mary, again, it's, she's exemplary of the faith that God delights in. But notice it's not just her faith that's exemplary, but also her humility, as demonstrated in her submission. We see that a little bit more in, in the song that she sings, the Magnificat, we'll look at next week. But even here, she calls herself the slave of God. That, that, that word bondservant is the Greek word doulos. You know it well. It's a slave. One who has no rights. She says, I'm a slave to God. Her mentality is reflective of Jesus' words in Mark 10. But whoever would be great among you must be servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And this is why she puts herself entirely at God's disposal when she says, may it be done to me according to your word. What this, what this means is her whole will is wrapped up in God's will. This is very similar, actually, to way, the way her child that is promised to her will speak when he says in John 6.38, For I have come down to he- from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he said something again similarly in the garden when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. Mary's essentially saying that she's a slave to God because she trusts his word. She so trusts God's word because she trusts God that she's going to embrace whatever he calls her to do no matter the cost. And recognize, again, brothers and sisters, there was a cost. This is not just some romantic declaration of boldness like Peter flinging his sword. She knew the cost, and she bore it. You, you know what the cost was for um, fornication in Israel. And not only that, she was spared because of Joseph from that cost. But not only that, she almost lost Joseph. She would have if God had not intervened with the dream. But even though those, she was spared from losing Joseph, she was spared from being stoned, she wasn't spared from the stigma of being a slut. And we know that because of what the Pharisees say to Jesus in John 8.41. And it was all false. 
all of it was false. I mean, you, we know the shame when our sin is exposed. When we actually have done something wrong worthy of shame, we all know it and we hate it. In fact, for most of us, we would almost give anything if, if, we could, if that could just not be true of us. But Mary didn't do anything wrong. She is going to be considered a slut for the rest of her life because she's highly favored. If you're going to follow Christ, be ready to be slandered. People are going to believe things about you that are absolutely not true. Just because somebody wanted to speculate or somebody just wants to elevate themselves to, make, to justify their own decisions to make you look bad because they see you as some sort of threat. It's going to happen. Maybe it's going to be because you attend a church where we still meet despite COVID restrictions. They're going to say, you're just one of those COVID deniers. Or you're just, you just don't love people. You're just, you're just rebellious. You're just self-centered. Not knowing that you just, you just are a slave of Christ. And you love Him and and nothing's going to keep you from worshiping Him. Or maybe it's because you're not going to sign some conformity clause at work. And somebody's going to look at you and and seriously think that you're just another Islamophobe. Or you're homophobic. You're going to be accused of being a racist. Expect it. It's going to happen. And recognize you're not the first. And in fact, when that happens, recognize when you suffer unjustly, as Peter told us, you have the favor of God, like Mary. Jim Elliott, Nate Satan, friends, as you know, were speared to death a little over, a little under a hundred years ago. But maybe, maybe you don't know, maybe you do know this, but the reason they were killed is because a adulterous couple wanted to cover up their sin and therefore accused the missionaries of doing wrong. So they lied about the missionaries and it led to five godly men being killed. It's critical that we recognize the connections here. Mary has God's favor Because she's humble and because she trusts in His Word. And Mary's humble because she trusts in His Word. And Mary freely embraces submission and humility because she knows God is trustworthy. What I want you to see is this is all a circle. It builds on itself. When you recognize God is trustworthy, you can trust His Word, which brings about humility, which brings about submission, which brings about the favor of God. And so likewise, if you want to be a man or woman of God... It begins by going to His Word and then trusting His Word, not leaning on your own understanding and continuing to humble yourself and live for Him and not yourself. And you will steadily grow in strength and in grace and in confidence and in Christ's likeness. This is the key. It's the Word of God. We must not neglect it. And we have all people in America, good night, we carry the Word of God with us on our phones. We should be meditating on it day and night. And if we will, God says, 
He will use that to both protect us, but also to conform us into Christ-likeness. There is no excuse for you to spend more time in entertainment than in meditating on God's Word, unless you just want to be food for Satan's fodder. And I know you don't want that. And so if you want to stop getting duped by Satan, take up the full armor and all the promises of God's Word. Remember how Jace, uh, sorry, uh, Jesus responded to, to Satan when he was tempted in the garden. Right? Satan said, said a number, three different temptations, and Jesus responded to three different quotations of Scripture. But the first was, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not just those words in the Gospels that are read, but every word, all of it, the whole counsel of God, that's how we live. That's how we survive, let alone strive. Jesus said that. And recognizing the promise of God's word is what leads to all the virtues of Christ's likeness, to Christian courage, to to genuine biblical love, to sacrificial, um, to having a sacrificial mindset, and humility, selflessness, and joy. Do you want to know what separates the men from the boys, or the godly women from the girls in the Bible and in church history? It's one thing. Confidence in the Word of God. Faith. If you, if you just look through the whole of Scripture, or you just examine church history, what was it that made a single individual rise up in the midst of their generation for people to recognize there goes a godly man or woman? It was all the same thing. They all had absolute confidence in God's Word. Hebrews 11, by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even she when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know the rest. Others were suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Recognize, what's the common theme? Faith. Do you want to be such a man or woman of God? You don't need to be smarter. You don't need to come from a different family. You don't need to get a greater education. Brothers and sisters, you need just one thing. Trust Him. Believe Him. Live upon a God who is invisible. And you will make your mark upon the earth. If you abide in Him, you will bear much fruit. But if you don't abide in Him, you will wither and you will be cut off. Humble submission and trust is what defined the life of George Mueller. And we know him for being the one who just prayed and God provided for him all of his 
financial resources for multiple ministries, most notably orphans, thousands of orphans he God provided for, and, and Mueller never asked once for somebody to give him money. He just prayed, God, we have needs, meet your needs. He believed the promise of Scripture. And God met every single one of his needs. Never once were they lacking. It's amazing biography. I encourage you to read it. And he said this after the death of his wife. The last portion of Scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace. And to all such, He will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. I said, I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner. But I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she's not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs... Mueller writes, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says, end quote. You want to know what made Mueller such an effective weapon of God? He trusted God's word. That's what he says. That's the same thing that Bunyan said. Humble submission and trust is what defined the life of Hudson Taylor also, who is Mueller's friend. Prior to leaving for China, Hudson Taylor wrote to his mother as he was, again, in a, in a state like Mueller, just asking God to provide for him miraculously. He said, I'm indeed proving the truth of that word. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. My mind is quite as much at rest as, nay, more than it would be if I had a hundred pounds in my pocket. May he keep me ever thus, simply depending on him for every blessing, temporal as well as spiritual. You know, about the, the same time he wrote to his sister saying this, No situation is yet turned up in London that will suit me, but I'm not concerned about it, as he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love is unfailing, his word unchangeable, his power ever the same. Therefore, the heart that trusts in him will be kept in perfect peace. Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, John Bunyan. You can just go down the list from Adam until the last great Christian hero on the face of this earth. The one thing that will define all of them and that should define each one of us is faith in God's word. He will never leave thee or forsake thee. So I ask in conclusion, will you trust Him with your whole life? With all of your life? Will you trust Him? 
Will you too know for yourself the preciousness and the joy and happiness that comes from casting all of your cares upon God, knowing that He cares for you? And so that when you are surrounded by difficulties and needs and maybe various kinds of persecutions and slanders, that you will be in perfect peace because you know the living God, your Father in Heaven, cares for you. And I ask that question both to to Christians as well as unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever in this room, I appeal to you to think about it. Will you trust Him? And if you're not going to trust Him, who are you going to trust? There is no one more faithful, nowhere near as faithful as God. Heavenly Father, we want to trust You. We want to trust You more and more. Father, I pray that You would help us to become a people who are mighty in the Scriptures so that we too would be light into, in this adulterous generation, that we would not be like Zacharias asking for a sign, but we'd be like Mary who say, I'm your slave. Let it be done to me according to your word. And help us to know how we can encourage and support and strengthen one another as we all move forward to this end. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.